It's good to be back with you all again. This is uh, one of my favorite places, and it's just a privilege to be here. I feel like I'm with kindred spirits here. Certainly felt that way with Ryan this weekend and, and the other guys. What a privilege to spend that time with them, and looking forward to rubbing shoulders with a number of you this, this uh, week as well. So uh, years ago, my wife, Roxy, and I uh, went off to school, and uh, we had a heart for God, a heart for people, and a heart for ministry. We hadn't really uh, landed yet on what we would do after graduation. Uh, we were thinking, well, that it maybe would be something like pastoral ministry, and with both of us having grown up in the city, and in a big church, we were thinking maybe I'd land on a big church staff, be like kind of the number five guy on a five church staff or, or something like that. While we were in school, uh, Roxy and I talked a lot about what our future might look like. Um, we prayed about it a fair amount. Um, I will say that it, it bothered us in a sense that we didn't have just an absolutely clear direction about where we were going. Um, one of the questions that I really didn't like being asked was, so what are you going to do after you graduate? I don't know if any of you have been asked that question. I kind of guess you have. As we got to our final uh, year, we began to look at opportunities. And we soon found that there were really very few positions available on big church staffs. What we found instead was a lot of opportunity in smaller churches as solo pastors, and uh, most of those churches were located in smaller communities. This was really not what Roxy and I were expecting and uh, we had to really adjust our thinking a lot. And I remember in particular, we had one conversation with our school's placement director. And uh, the thing that stood out from that conversation, I remember to this day, was he said, Ron, I just think that you need to keep an open mind. And uh, hearing that made me realize that this was kind of a test for us in a way because actually Roxy and I have been praying for years that, uh, and telling the Lord that we were open to, to anything. So, um, so yes, we tried to keep an open mind about, about things. Uh, as, as I describe a little bit of where we were at in school, I wonder if uh, some of you might be sort of in a similar place right now. Uh, a few weeks ago, as I was thinking about being here and kind of uh, actually working my way through the book of Nehemiah, I came to the place uh, where I realized that there might be a lot here that speaks to any of you who might find yourselves kind of in limbo, not really sure of where your life direction might take you. So, um, I'd like to share a few of those thoughts that just came to mind as I was looking through this. Uh, I would invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah. You 
You all are kind of my guinea pigs. I've never actually shared these thoughts with anybody else. Johnny, I wonder if we could, yeah, you got the slide up, good. So uh, see, see whether these uh, thoughts might resonate with you uh, today. Want to just quickly move through some key happenings that uh, took place in Nehemiah's life. So ministry direction, I think, often begins with a passion that God lays on our hearts. Passion can happen a lot of different ways. For Nehemiah, it came after receiving some awful news. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them, considering the, concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So news comes to Nehemiah about his hometown being in a world of hurt. And as he hears this, it breaks his heart. His people are defenseless, they're vulnerable, they're discouraged, they're feeling overwhelmed, and I think they are just absolutely paralyzed by their circumstances. Hearing all of this created in Nehemiah what I think we might call a holy discontent. He was brought face to face with an awful situation that seemingly no one was doing anything about. And this situation lit a fire in Nehemiah. I wonder uh, if God at this point in your life has put in you a, a passion, a holy discontent. I think this is where direction for ministry often begins. Now let me hasten to say that if you don't yet have a specific passion, I really think that's okay. I don't think I'd worry too much about that at this point. Um, I think you've got plenty of time. I, I would encourage you not to sit back and wait for passion to come to you. I would encourage you to explore I know some of you have taken missions trips, and some of you are probably planning to do that. I think that's a, a good way for the Lord to begin to stir a passion in you. Uh, I'm sure many of you are involved in local ministries, and that might stir a passion. Uh, you have opportunity to talk to lots of different people that come and go here on campus that uh, can share uh, their hearts and their ministries with you. That may provide a passion as, as well. And while you're exploring, I would encourage you to, to be open to anything. And especially be open to the possibility that God might surprise you. As you expose yourself to different kinds of needs, see where God stirs your heart. It might be some kind of a social issue like human trafficking or abortion 
or orphan care or domestic violence or, or poverty. It might be a realization that there's a people group out there somewhere that is almost void of hearing the gospel. It might be a heart for the next generation that perhaps translates into some kind of youth ministry. It might be a heart for instilling the word of God in others that uh, perhaps prompts you to, uh, to preach, maybe to teach, perhaps go into Bible translation. It might be a heart for, for people that are in difficult circumstances. Maybe you just have a special compassion for that that translates into a counseling or maybe some kind of a pastoral care ministry. There's all kinds of ways that, uh, that God can stir our hearts. Ministry direction often begins with a passion that God lays on our hearts. For Roxy and me, uh, this actually came after graduation. So see, you got, you got a little bit of time. Um, having told the Lord that we were open to anything, these two city slickers found themselves candidating in ranching country in Nebraska. And that weekend, uh, God began to stir our heart with the needs that we saw there. And after we moved up there, he began to stir even more. We'd been under the impression that rural America was wholesome country living, that it was Mayberry out there, that, um, you know, that uh, spiritual need pretty much stopped at the city limits. We discovered that as we looked up and down the road from where we were located in Nebraska, that there was town after town that lacked a vibrant, gospel-proclaiming, Bible-teaching church. We were shocked to discover rampant <coughs> substance abuse, especially alcohol. We found all kinds of family dysfunction, the number of single moms uh, increasing at a pace that uh, faster than their counterparts in the city, teen pregnancies one-third higher, divorce rates higher, domestic violence rampant. We found that the suicide rate of farmers and ranchers was number two in all job categories. And by the way, just in the last three or four weeks, I read that it's actually moved now to number one. We discovered that there were many dozens of counties in rural America, including the county that we were living in, that had fewer than 5% evangelical Christians, less than many foreign countries that we send missionaries to. Roxy and I were just shocked that all of this was right in our backyard. Uh, we just, we had, we had no idea. As all of this was unfolding before our eyes, Roxy and I would talk by the hour, usually at our kitchen table. In our conversations, we would often say, somebody ought to do something. But for the longest time, we assured that that meant somebody else, because after all, we were from the city, we were viewing this ministry as kind of a stepping stone that would eventually lead to a ministry somewhere 
in the city. But after a while, through our conversations, we found ourselves more and more thinking, maybe God wants us to be two of those somebodies. Now the short of it is that uh, we've been in rural ministry for 36 years. We would never have envisioned that when we were sitting where you're sitting now. It would not have even been a figment in our imaginations. It was not Ron and Roxy's wonderful plan for their lives. But we found that it was God's plan and that indeed it has been a wonderful plan. And I have to say I wouldn't trade the last 36 years with anybody. After God births a passion, or what I like to call a holy discontent, probably the next thing that should happen is that we fall on our knees in prayer. We've come face to face with something much bigger than we can possibly accomplish on our own. In our case, God had given us a burden, not just for our rural community, but for rural America at large. If you look at a map, that's a lot of territory, and there's a lot of people that live out there. And uh, we needed God to somehow assure us that he would go before us. Nehemiah felt a similar inadequacy in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah knows that he needs God's help. And I find it interesting that as he, as he just falls on his knees before God in prayer, a big part of his prayer through the rest of this chapter is confessing the brokenness of the people confessing their sins before God in prayer. And as he does so, one of the things that really stands out to me is that he uses the word we. If you look at verse 7, he says, We have acted corruptly against you. Why include himself in this? Because he's, he's confessing sins here that had happened many years before he was even born. I think that Nehemiah has come to an understanding of the human condition. He understands that we are all sinners, and in his prayer, he simply identifies with this. He knows full well that had he been alive those many years back, he very well could have sinned in the same ways that those Jews had sinned that resulted in them going into captivity. And so his attitude as this whole story unfolds is, is really exemplary. It's not, I'm here to help you sinners get out of this mess that you have created for yourself. But rather it's our sin that gets us in the messes like this. You know, I think this is really instructive for us as we think about our future ministry path and the people that God is going to put into that path. We need to be very careful not to pass judgment. We need to be careful not to say, thank you, God, 
that I am not like these people. Rather, we need to take our place with them as sinners among sinners. As Roxy and I looked at broken rural America, we realized that our calling was to enter that world of sin, to jump into the mess, to identify with it, to come alongside these people as sinners among sinners. As Nehemiah's heart is stirred with the need, God confirms that he wants Nehemiah to do something. And he begins to put a plan into his, his mind. A vision begins to emerge. And we see this happening uh, starting in chapter 2. I'm struck by the fact that this is not something that came quickly. Four months have passed. We have some time markers in chapter 1, verse 1. It's the month of Chislev. And chapter 2, verse 1, it's the month of Nisan. Four months later. And I think what this tells us, what it reminds us, is that generally um, forging vision, generally planning ministry direction, is something that needs to cook for a while. We need to be careful about being too hasty, because if we are, uh, there could very well be disappointing results. This is, in my experience, um, probably the loneliest part about ministry. Forging vision could very well be the most difficult thing that you do in ministry. It's something that almost certainly has to be done in solitude. It's done out of the limelight. There's not a lot of glory in it. It takes time. Uh, quite frankly, it gives you a headache. <laughs> um, and yet it's so necessary for effective leadership and successful ministry. For Nehemiah, by the time he went public with his plan, he had carefully thought through a number of things. He had a timetable to give the king. We see this in chapter 2, verse 6. He had specific requests to ask of the king. We see this in verses 7 and 8. Uh, this included letters for governors so that he could have safe passage through their territory. It included a letter of a, a keeper of a forest along with a materials list for some lumber. Had Nehemiah just hastily thrown some plans together, none of it thought through very carefully. It's very doubtful that people here would have gotten on board and supported his vision. For Roxy and me, uh, this kind of planning happened over several years. During our kitchen table conversations, some ideas began to emerge as to what might be done to address the problem of so many towns void of, of vibrant churches. At one point, we took our conversation to a concentrated week at uh, the Howard Hendricks Center for Christian Leadership in Dallas. Um, we were there for about 30 hours of intense one-on-one -on -one, uh, vision forging with five different experts, and each, each one working with us uh, individually. And I have to tell you, after that week, I have probably never been so exhausted in my life. 
when it was time to go public, after several years of planning, we had distilled a vision for rural America down to one piece of paper, one side of one piece of paper. It was clear, it was concise, and it was concrete. And we've been endeavoring to work at fulfilling that vision for the last 25 years or so. Now we come to Nehemiah chapter 3. Take a look at this chapter, if you will. Starting with verse 1. What do you see? You see a lot of names of people, don't you? One after another. I think there's about 50 in the whole chapter. So if, if you were reading through Nehemiah in your devotions, or if you were preaching through Nehemiah, it would be really tempting to skip this chapter, wouldn't it? And yet, uh, this is a very, very important chapter. And the reason is because very seldom is the, the carrying out of vision something for lone rangers. We need God to stir up other people, to raise up an army of people to partner with us. People of various backgrounds and skills came together to build this wall. These people are faceless to us. But you know what? They're important enough that God decides to etch their names permanently into the Bible. These are not insignificant people. All of the roles that they fill are important, whether big or small. Notice how often the words next to them or next to him are repeated all the way through chapter 3, over and over again. This was a team effort. This was people working together shoulder to shoulder. I'm sure Nehemiah thanked God many times for stirring people up to get behind the vision that God had put into his mind. And I have to say that I'm, I'm thankful to God as well for raising up thousands of people over the years who have partnered with us at RHMA. Could not do it without them. So, are you catching a glimpse here of how God might work in your life? I'm wondering where you might see yourself in this picture. Um, if we would turn one, two, three, four into a timeline, where would you say that you are in that timeline? Perhaps you've come face to face with something that just isn't right, something that breaks your heart, something that gives you a holy discontent, something that captures your thoughts. Maybe you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it. Maybe it's a whole country. Maybe it's a, a community. Maybe it's just one segment of a community. Maybe you're praying at this point, trying to determine how and, and or maybe if, and then how God might want you to get involved. And you're maybe praying, well, where, where is my role in this? Am I, am I a leader? Am I, am I the visionary? 
or perhaps maybe you're better suited to be in a support role, kind of like these people here in chapter 3, quietly lending their hand to someone else's vision. And as you pray, maybe God is beginning to help you envision your place in a noble pursuit that he has burdened your heart with that you want to see happen for his glory. Now, if if Nehemiah would end with chapter 3, I think that we would say, this is great. (laughs) This uh, This is happening. Things are running on all cylinders. But then we, uh, we come to chapter 4, and this is where it can appear that the wheels are starting to come off the wagon. Whenever our holy discontent prompts us to take action, it's almost inevitable that at some point along the way, probably sooner than later, we're going to face difficulty. You can almost count on it. In Nehemiah's case, it came in the form of resistance from others. Chapter 4 is a dose of reality. I wish it wasn't in the Bible. (laughs) I wish I could take my scissors and cut it out or hit the delete button on my Bible app. But you know, difficulty will almost certainly happen if we're in ministry. Christ said, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He said, in the world you will have tribulation. The Apostle Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Peter said, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as though something strange were happening to you. So this is not abnormal. It will happen. As I read through chapter 4, I kind of feel like I'm in junior high all over again. Nehemiah and the people face constant taunting from Sanballat. What are these feeble Jews doing? You really think you got this? And then it only gets worse because, you know, every school bully has a sidekick and Tobias steps in with, even more derisiveness. He says, what they are building? (laughs) If a dainty fox would walk on that wall, it would break it down. And on and on it goes through chapter 4 and on through Nehemiah. And You know, it's not just making fun for the sake of making fun. These, these, These people are angry. They are haters. They are bullies. This is outright opposition. Their goal is to shut things down, and they are even willing to use extreme measures if needed. For us today, it could happen through a biting email or a text, a withering Facebook post, a uh, nasty reaction to an Instagram photo, In case you haven't noticed, social media just loves to tear things in the shreds, doesn't it? It could come in a face-to-face conversation. There are all kinds of ways 
that difficulty can come across our path if we're in ministry. This kind of stuff can play on us. It can make us feel weak. It can discourage us. It can prompt us to second-guess ourselves and even make us want to, want to quit. And uh, its source might surprise us. Sometimes it comes from family members. Sometimes from friends. At least we thought they were friends. Um, who maybe look at us as if we're some kind of a, a wacko. Um, it may come from ungodly people who oppose what we're standing for. Perhaps most difficult of all, it can come from fellow believers. And when difficulty happens, how will we respond? Well, again, I think Nehemiah is so exemplary. Nehemiah doesn't let the hate stop him. He plows through. We don't have time to track all that he did, but let me just summarize for you. He organized people in teams so they could support each other. He armed them. Not sure if I would rec recommend that for us today. Um, he gave a rousing speech. Um, he said things like, this thing is bigger than you. More is on the line here than just your life. You're fighting for God's awesome name. You're fighting for your family, for future generations. God is with us. God will fight for us. Let's get back to work. I mean, incredible speech. He talked strongly to the opposition, and he didn't blink. He just kept going. Cutting to the quick, with God's help, and with Nehemiah's careful leadership, and with the strong support of people who joined him in the cause, Nehemiah's vision was fulfilled. At RHMA, we like to call it sanctified stubbornness. Do you know that it's okay to be stubborn sometimes? I think another word for it would be perseverance. Or we could use the word stick to -itiveness. Sometimes hanging in there is the big secret to fulfilling what God has for us to do. If you are somewhere on this journey, I would love to chat with you. And no, it doesn't have to be about rural ministry. I'd love to talk to you about that too. I can spend time talking to you about what God stirred, how God stirred our hearts and what we saw out there. I'd be happy to do that, but I'd just be happy to connect with you wherever you are on your journey, wherever your thought processes are taking you these days, and maybe we can just talk. And as Ryan said, uh, I'll be here today um, over the, through the lunch hour, so you can come and just sit by me at the table so I don't have to sit by myself. Um, or uh, uh, I'll be at the church leaders conference later this week, or if you want to just get together, I'll be in the area. So uh, we can go have a cup of coffee together, or I can just meet you here somewhere and be glad to chat with you some more. Let's pray together.
Father, I just uh, want to commit these students to you. Uh, as I look across at all these folks, uh, I know that there are students here that have a heart for you, have a heart for people, and uh, a heart for ministry. And Lord, I just pray that you will, in your time and in your own way, direct those hearts appropriately. Help them to turn into life direction, purpose, and I pray that you in your own way and, and uh, by your own sovereign leading will help each one here to someday, and maybe not too far from now, uh, find themselves in a place of fruitful ministry where they're being mightily used of you. Lord, I pray that uh, you will just sovereignly bring things into the paths of each of these students that will just guide their, their, their path and ultimately take them where you want them to be. And while you do that, I pray that you will do a great work inside of them because so often it's not so much where we are in ministry, but who we are where we are. And we know that involves uh, just your working in our hearts and our minds and uh, instilling godly character and wisdom in us. And I pray for that as well on behalf of each student here. Thank you for the example of people in scripture and today for the example of Nehemiah and for how it teaches us. And we thank you in the name of Christ. Amen.